What's up, everybody? Welcome to Relinda Speaks. We're back with a brand new episode. Before we get into things, I want to quickly give a shout out to all of the new Patreon subscribers. Thank you for supporting the podcast and this very important work. So thank you to Barry, Christina, Lindsay, Shrey, and Lauren, our brand new Patreon subscribers. Thank y'all. So today I wanted to offer a conversation about uh, so many of the responses that we are seeing from corporations and companies in this time of racial reckoning. And in particular, the NFL and college football programs and really get a sense of, you know, what's going on. And so I invited David Watts, who is a student athlete advocate and former collegiate player at UC Berkeley and an overall uh, sports guru. Check it out. What's up, everybody? I'm really excited to bring on today's guest, David Watts, who is an advocate for athletes and works in the educational sphere with student athletes. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Relinda. Well, we've been having a lot of conversations uh, around the intersection of sports and race and social justice. And I think with our current climate that we're in, it really brings some great conversation. So I'm just going to jump right in. I wanted to first ask you, what were your thoughts about the NFL releasing a statement um, that said that they wanted to work to fight against racial injustice? Um, and that came as a surprise to many people thinking about Colin Kaepernick and his stance to fight racial injustice by taking a knee. And he was essentially blackballed from the NFL. And to see the NFL do this pivot, I wanted to get your thoughts. What do you think? I personally think it's a PR campaign. I think the NFL is doing this because it's something that they feel is going to make them look good. I think that they believe that other uh, organizations and, 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 and Fortune 500 companies are, are, are giving responses. So I feel like they need to feel like they're doing something too and saying the right thing now, which is two or three years too late. Do you think that them making uh, statements had to do with the fact that the league is 70% black players and so they were maybe in some way thinking that them not saying something would hurt their bottom line or that players would be keenly interested to see how they would respond? I definitely think they had that in mind in terms of, you know, 70% of the players are African-American, but it's the same 70% that was playing in a league two or three years ago. So I honestly think this is all a response of being on par with what everybody else is doing, um, especially in terms of organizations, national organizations are coming out and saying that, uh, you know, the BLM movement, Black Lives Matter is something that is not anti-white and it is not about the flag. I think this is definitely not proactive. I think it's reactive. And I think when they had the opportunity to really, really, really make an impact, I think they failed. Now, I will never be one to say that, you know, small wins are important because I think small wins are important. But um, at this point in time, I am not about trickery and trinkets. 
I believe the NFL needs to be bold with this movement and be bold with the support of these players and make some kind of policy changes that are going to be favorable to African-Americans. And we can talk a little about that in a bit. I mean, when you say, you know, make it more favorable, I mean, I think about the reality that you have, you know, two or three black coaches in the league. You rarely have general managers or presidents of teams um, thinking about people in leadership positions. So while making a statement could seem like an action in the right direction or a step forward in the right direction, um, it seems really empty because the real systemic change comes from, to your point, policy changes and thinking about leadership changes but you have yet to hear the NFL mention any of that. I mean, there's a rule that they have in place already in the NFL that's supposed to yield, you know, more black coaches and more uh, leadership that, you know, is representative of the players. And even with having a rule that's been in place, they still have failed to deliver. It's referred to as the Rooney Rule, and it's been around for a while. Um, the NFL really can't say that these black coaches are unqualified and that aren't successful. When you look at coaches like Lovey Smith, you look at coaches like uh, Tony Dungy, you look at uh, the coach for the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin, these coaches have actually won Super Bowls. So when you think of all the other coaches that happen to be white and you compare with the percentage of coaches that a small percentage that happen to be African-American and you count by percentages in terms of the amount of Super Bowls the African-American coaches have won, like it's a no brainer. But let's even go bigger. You know, let's take it a step further. Let's talk about ownership. Um, I believe in terms of ownership, there's not an African-American owner in the NFL. I believe in Major League Baseball, there's not an African-American owner. I do believe that in the NBA, Michael Jordan is the sole owner. And if it takes the owner to be of the depths of Michael Jordan, I mean, there's only one. There will only ever be one Michael Jordan. So if that's what it takes, and it's almost a hurdle that's too high to, you know, to jump over. So I would love to see the NFL promote, you know, having opportunities for these wealthy African-American individuals. I know there are groups that could be put together. I remember a while back, um, the Carolina Panthers were talking about uh, selling a team and a group of folks, with Steph Curry and a bunch of other folks were trying to pull their money together. Diddy and some other celebrities were trying to put their money together to, you know, to own an NFL. I think it's going to take a measure like that for people to see that we are qualified, that we are successful and that it's something that once given an opportunity, I definitely believe that you're going to see, you know, change really occur and happen. Yeah, but I I think I I think to that idea of like, you know, a a number of athletes coming together and, and, you know, um, joining, combining their resources. But that still doesn't get at the systemic piece, because I think, you know, going back to what I was saying is the idea of to make systemic change, it requires a redistribution of power a redistribution of opportunity, a redistribution of resources. And so even with those folks that, you know, have the means that could come together, it shouldn't take for that to happen 
in order for there to be change that's built in because that doesn't even have anything to touch upon like the the coaching or touch upon like the leadership that's specifically the ownership part but i think in making the league favorable right to the community that makes up the bulk of your league I mean, the onus and responsibility, I mean, shouldn't it be on the league without having to have a group of people pull together their resources? Absolutely. I do think that since you got 70% of the league or approximately 70% happen to be African-American, you got all these former alum players that have been playing for years and years and years and have made the league as credible as it is. I do believe the NFL should do a better job of having their black players be a part of administrative roles, whether they be vice presidents, whether they be, you know, folks who are in charge of like discipline or folks who are in charge of uh, of of draft night or whatever it may be. I just definitely think that we should be seeing a lot more of these NFL players that have put their lives on the line. Um, for years and and their health and their safety on the line. We should be seeing them with rewards of actually having employment by the NFL when their career's over. So uh, let's pivot and let's go to uh, college football. And I know that something that came up uh, in the discourse recently is the idea that many of these college coaches um, of big top-notch programs you know spend a lot of their time going into the homes of young black um, high school players to really entice them to want to attend their university so they do a lot of effort um, and energy to recruit these young men but these coaches in this moment of racial injustice have been largely silent And that's been a critique and they've been called out many of these coaches. And so, you know, as we think about being in this moment, I mean, if I were, you know, a mother to one of these young men, I would be looking at the words and the actions of these coaches and really letting that be a determining factor if I felt comfortable sending my son to, you know, this program. So what are your thoughts on that? Whether it's college football, college basketball, those are the sports, the revenue-producing sports, where there's primarily a large, significant number of African-American young men playing. I'll say this. College coaches will come to these homes, will meet with mom and dad or grandpa or grandpa, uncle, aunt, whoever is in the home at the time, and these coaches swear up and down that they will be treating these kids like they're their own sons. Hmm. And I think what ends up happening is, is in terms of them providing them with a quality education, so to speak, providing them with an opportunity to, you know, play at an elite level, providing them hopefully with an opportunity to one day uh, embark on a professional career. That's all fine and dandy. But what I believe these coaches aren't doing is they aren't preparing these young men socially. All right. A lot of these young men are sort of forced to sort of block out everything that doesn't have to do with school and football. And a lot of these young men, by the time that they are done playing, they feel like they haven't really developed an identity or an interest outside of football because they've been one track minded. 
I believe when these coaches go and speak to these families, they need to do a better job of making sure that these young men, especially coming from diverse communities and, um, you know, different socioeconomic, you know, standings, I believe these coaches need to go into these parents' houses and basically tell these parents that in light of the unrest and the turmoil that's going on. I will be speaking on behalf of them in terms of support, advocating for, you know, their rights and and, and, and for young men across the country that might not be athletes themselves, but that might be in the community and that might be subject to a lot of this police brutality. Yeah, but I guess, you know, my question remains like the, you know, I think that's like the future and maybe that's what will come now, right? Like in the future. But what about these coaches like right now that clearly knew that this issue was going on? You can see how pervasive it is. And in this moment, you're seeing this play out where players are seeing you know, the identity and the community that they represent under siege and coaches basically being silent. It's it's something the silence was even more deafening two or three years ago. Let's just put it to you like that. I believe there has since, um, you know, since the George Floyd incident, I believe there have been um, quite a few coaches that have come out with public statements, this, that, and the other. But to be honest with you, very similar to the NFL, I think it was very reactionary. I think those statements were sort of done um, because everybody else was doing them. And I believe it was something that, um, I'm not going to say it wasn't in their heart, but I believe it was a lot safer much recently than it was before in the past. There was an initial silence that was deafening. Um, I actually, you know, posted about that as well in terms of, you know, having these coaches really be caring about these young men more than just the athletes themselves. Um, But I firmly believe these coaches don't want to toe the line of being against what the university uh, deems as controversial or, you know, they want to make sure that they are digestible for the uh, the boosters that donate millions of dollars to the organization, this, that, and the other. And at the end of the day, I believe these coaches have to do the right things by the players rather than the outside influencers, whether it be the university or the fans. I believe the players have got to be the number one priority in making sure that they are advocated for and they are supported and they are basically prepared for life outside of football. And what that entails is, is having difficult conversations, being prepared to have these difficult conversations and not being in an environment that uh, for so long these players have sort of been um, relegated to being in an environment that was colorblind. And I think that's very dangerous. I think a colorblind environment to a person of color basically tells them that their experience is not valid. And that's not right by any means. Yeah, and I also think, too, that by suggesting that we live in a colorblind society, it also absolves these coaches from their responsibility. And so I think if we think about, you know, 
how these college athletes don't make any money, but they are the, you know, driving the revenue at the schools, but they can't hold an outside job. They can't get revenue from their jerseys or any other merchandise that's sold. I mean, it really goes back to this system where um, even though they're the driving force of the system, they're not benefiting from it. And so I think that you know, that's really important to keep in mind about how all of this is playing out. Absolutely. I believe these players have always been the product. They are the show. They are the ones that make the millions of dollars. They sell the tickets. All right. I believe these players have much more power than they are aware of in terms of recruiting. I think it's going to come to a point in time where it's going to be where recruits on a national level want to know and should know where certain coaches stand about certain issues, racial issues, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and this, that, and the other. I believe it's going to come a point in time where these are the expected questions that the student athletes, that their parents, that their guardians should be asking these coaches. And if they're not getting the responses from these coaches that they deserve, or if it's sort of lukewarm responses, then those aren't the schools that they should be going to. Right. And I think of all of what's going on, that I for me is a is one of my hopes is that this becomes a game changer because I think how we've been functioning in this dysfunctional system, right? Where it's always, you know, a giver and a taker, right? Um, that that has to change because, you know, these issues of police brutality and racial discrimination, racial profiling, these coaches know that these things have been happening to their athletes. I mean, they've known, but they just chose to not do anything about it. And I think that that's something where did you really have that young man's, you know, uh, best interest? In many respects, they lied to these family members when they say, I'm going to take care of your son and I'm going to make sure that he's okay. That actually was just trying to close the deal. You referenced it as a lie. I wouldn't go that far. I would probably go as far as them not being as thorough as they should be. Them not being informed and them not being educated and them not being um, willing to talk about the elephant in the room on a large scale um, with their team, with the university, with the media and things of that nature. Because for so long, what I'm basically trying to say as a former student athlete, for so long in terms of these coaches, their whole job they see is to win games, to graduate student athletes, and to keep keep their student athletes out of trouble. These players got to know that their coaches care about them more than just as athletes. And I believe a lot of these players, um, up until it became popular, within the last couple of weeks where coaches were saying and having public comments. I believe there are players, were players, all across the country for the last however long college athletics has been going on with the doubt of does my coach care about me as a human being in addition to just being an athlete. Hmm. And I think that's a very, very, very valid question that a lot of these young men are asking themselves. And and I believe 
that for when these young men are being recruited, these are the types of questions that they need to be asking current players that are actually on the roster at recruiting trips or online. These players who are prospective student-athletes who are being recruited need to find out if these coaches are who they say they are when they're being recruited. And I think it's it's very simple. Talk to alums. Talk to current players. Talk to alums that not only are from that particular school that's recruiting them, but, you know, alums that have played for them before at a completely different university. Yeah, but I still feel like I hear that, but I also am like these, these young men are 17, 18 years old. The responsibility still ultimately falls on the coach. It's the coach that the, the coach is the adult. The coach is the one that's making millions of dollars a year, not the 17 or 18 year old. And so I think that in many ways, when we say, you know, ask the questions of the current players, we're putting the responsibility on the 17 or 18 year old, which, you know, that's not where they're thinking right and they're trying to figure out how to gain a spot on the roster which comes with certain demands right and and expectations I think that it should be where if you as a coach know that your team is going to have black players you are in the black community talking to these families the onus and responsibility for you to ensure that you stand up for these young men, that's on the coach. I agree. I agree. I would probably, I not probably, I would say that the responsibility, a large portion of the responsibility is on the coaches. But I wouldn't, you know, absolve any responsibility from the student athletes as well. Like they need to be informed about what they're getting into. So, so my thing is, is like in any decision, whether you're a student athlete or not, you need to do your homework about, you know, graduation rates, about, you know, how well a school prepares you for life after the sport or this, that, and the other. I believe the responsibility is on both ends. But ultimately, you're right. With the coach, as the professional, as the one making millions of dollars, absolutely. Another thing that I believe these coaches in these athletic departments and these universities could be doing to really be making an impact is putting their money where their mouth is. These coaches in these universities make so much money, billions of dollars, and oftentimes, these outrageous salaries of coaches making eight, ten million dollars a year, this, that, and the other, these administrators. I believe a lot of this money that is parceled out by the NCAA, whether it's the BCS Bowl or the uh, March Madness, I believe that these colleges should be putting money into these local communities where these kids are coming from. And as a recruit, I want to know if you're going to take care of me in terms of making sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and and, and putting me in the best optimum position to be successful. But as a player as well, I want to know if you're going to be invested in my community as well, because I have little cousins, I have siblings, you know, I have neighbors. So it's not just taking care of the student athletes while they're on the campus at your university. I believe the university owes it to the black communities that are in the surrounding areas to do that as well. So my last question to you is that, you know, with Colin Kaepernick 
taking a stand, you know, um, starting with taking a knee to want to bring attention to racial injustice and how there were so many that criticized the way that he did it. They made it about the flag. It was never about the flag. He clarified that multiple times. What do you think now? Because I think America has always been in this moment um, of revisionist history where they revise and rewrite the history and they tell it in ways that are erroneous. We can look at MLK as an example, right? And and the sanitizing of his message and, and his speeches. And what do you think Kaepernick's legacy will be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? How do you think... America will be talking about his story. Let me first start off by saying whether Cap need, whether he stood up, had his head bowed with his fist raised, whether he had his arms folded. I think anything Cap would have did once it came out that he was doing it against police brutality and, you know, for the human rights of black people. I think it would have been something that would have automatically been taken out of context. I believe for so long when black people have said enough is enough and they've had a movement where there was, you know, in the movement being pro-black. I believe there are so many people who are threatened by blackness that anything pro-black is they want to deem it as being anti-white. And that's not that way at all. Um, you could still be pro-black and still love white people, white culture, white America, this, that, and the other. But it just seemed like from the second that he did what he did, um, whether it was kneeling, at first he was sitting down, he spoke with the military guy um, who was a former NFL player that sort of suggested this might be mm-hmm. something that um, would go um, a, a lot smoother. And it was just co-opted. And I believe this co-opting is intentional in a sense to take the attention off the police brutality and off the injustice and to put it on something like being anti-American and and making it about the flag. In terms of the revisionist history, I always think it's funny that when we talk about Muhammad Ali being anti-war, and, 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 and not wanting to go in the draft. And we talk about Dr. Martin Luther King being anti-war, the Vietnam War. I always think it's so funny how when that happened in the 60s and you had people who were, you know, Tommy Smith, John Carlos in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, how they were making these public statements And they were viewed literally by everyone, including black folks themselves sometimes, right, as public enemy number one. And then 50, 60 years later, they are icons. You know, they're given, you know, medals of freedom by the president. So my whole thing was, is I always knew that there was going to be a point in time where people were going to look at Kaepernick and say he was doing the right thing. It was about freedom. It was about, you know, anti-blackness and he was doing the right thing. And I always knew that it was only a matter of time before he was going to be sort of um, 
lauded as somebody who was a freedom fighter and, and a civil rights activist. But it's almost like when he took the stance, he had to take the lumps first. And years later, he's actually going to get the credit of being some kind of martyr in the sense to where not that he gave up his life, but he gave up his career when a lot of other people didn't want to even um, support him or didn't want to, you know, kneel with him, which there were some athletes that did. But ideally, I feel like Cap and a lot of us on the outside who were watching this three or four years ago felt that he was on an island by himself. You know, he had a teammate, Eric Reed, Commendable, and a few other guys that were sort of supporting him from afar. But at the end of the day, I wish the NFL could be more transparent and have a public apology. He is owed some type of apology from a lot of the folks in the NFL, from a lot of the folks in the media, um, in particular, Jason Whitlock. (laughs) 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 Um... Um, but I'll say this, I'll say this in the last year of Dr. King's life from 1967 to 1968, when he was coming out talking about the poor people's campaign and he was talking about being against the war, literally he was hated by everyone. And to think how he's revered to now and sort of quoted every time somebody uh, has an opportunity when there's racial strife and, and things of that nature, it's just, you're right. There are a lot of people who have revisionist history. And I believe those people who have revisionist history need to be honest and need to say, I was on the other side of the fence. I did think a certain way. Now I think differently. And I think as America, I think that's what we owe to each other. We owe to each other the opportunity for us to not be perfect, to make mistakes, to own up to it, and to um, just to really make sure we don't make them again. Perfection isn't the prerequisite for healing and reconciliation. And I think that in order to achieve those two things, you have to reconcile your successes, but also your failures. And when I think about, you know, this moment and always been support of Kaepernick, I hope one day he's on the podcast um, because I have a lot of questions I'd want to ask. But I remember thinking that he's sacrificing a lot of comfort, right? We always talk a lot about comfort and, you know, what are you willing to risk? And um, he he sacrificed his comfort and a comfort lifestyle um, for what is right. And I think that if we had more people that did that in their everyday you know, walk in life, we wouldn't be in this moment that we're in right now. Absolutely. He he definitely sacrificed his career. I remember saying it back when it happened, his career's done. Mm-hmm. There's no way he's ever going to be able to play again. For him to do what he did at a point in his time where his career where he was due to make upwards to $100 million was very, very um, commendable. And I don't know if I would do it. Probably not. I know a lot of other professional athletes didn't do it. 
Um, it takes somebody very, very special to be able to have that kind of stance and to know what was at risk. He knew it was at risk. If I knew it, he knew it. I'm sure he spoke to people and people said, hey, are you sure you want to do this? This could be something that could totally change your life in the negative, very similar to Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And he was willing to he was willing to sacrifice his career. And um, I just hope that one day he gets the credit he deserves from all parties involved, top to bottom, because I believe what he did at the time was, you know, it was polarizing and um, not a lot of people were supporting him. And now look at it four years later. People are starting to understand, oh, well, maybe he did what he did and he was right. Um, this is something that will be in the record books and people are going to be talking about this for a very long time. The question that I have is for all the people who four years ago said that the kneeling was anti-American, was not the right thing to do, was disrespectful to the flag. My question to them is, is it still going to be anti-American and disrespectful to the flag in 2020? And that's the question that time will tell. We shall see. Um, but I believe, um, as we talked about earlier, Cap is somebody who was way ahead of the curve and was willing to sacrifice a lot when nobody else was. An example for us all. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the Relinda Speaks podcast today. Um, be sure to follow. Where can they follow you, David? You can follow me on Instagram, uh, David Watts Consulting. You can follow me on Facebook as well, David Watts Consulting. And last but not least, Twitter. I'm very active on all three accounts, but Twitter at DWC Info. I do a really, really good job. I'm, I'm, I'm intentional about putting a lot of content out there for young um, youth, high school and collegiate student athletes about developing uh, you know, personal skills, life skills that are gonna last a whole lot longer than their athletic career. Um, academic preparedness, academic achievement and all that kind of stuff. So to me, athletics is something that's been an entire part of my life for almost 20 years. But um, like I always tell the young people, um, your athletic career has a shelf life of a carton of milk and you got to be ready for it to be over because it's going to be over sooner than you think. Well, keep up the good work um, with the youth and reaching back. And uh, th definitely that's how uh, you're making a difference. So keep it up. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back in the near future. But it was great to have you. Thank you so much. Take care. God bless. So before we get out of here, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865, when the enslaved in Texas found out that they were free. Even though the Emancipation Proclamation was delivered two and a half years prior, the enslaved in Texas didn't find out until June 19th, 1865, because the slave masters wanted to have one final crop season to capitalize off of free labor. And so Juneteenth has always been a holiday freedom day for my family as 
we are the descendants of the enslaved. My great-grandmother, born in 1901 in Texas, her parents were enslaved. And so growing up, Juneteenth was a time of celebration, community, and time with family to celebrate the perseverance and the strength and love of our family that allowed for me to and so many to uh, be here um, to aspire to live a life of purpose and joy and seeing the country now um, come to know a little bit more about Juneteenth and want to explore more about Juneteenth, um, which is great. But I want to offer that I don't want this to be a one-off. I want us to continue to share this important holiday, to share the perseverance of the Black community, and to begin to acknowledge the fight um, for racial justice and liberation. And so that is the center of Juneteenth, the, the fight in, for racial justice and liberation. And so let's continue with that mindset and to continue to push this conversation forward. And so today is a day that I'm happy to celebrate and I'm happy that so many um, have taken interest in the holiday. And I have three things um, that I want to offer that uh, many have been asking. Well, how can I, as a white person or a non-black person, um, celebrate Juneteenth? And so I wanted to offer some thoughts on what that might look like. One, support a black-owned business. I think that so much of capitalism and the foundation of this country is tied to economic uh, mobility. And so a great way, support a black owned business, amplify a black voice. And that amplification could be through your own inquiry and edification of reading uh, a black scholar, an author, a writer, or in the modern sense, where is there an opportunity to elevate a voice or a perspective that perhaps has been um, silenced or erased? And think about this from your own everyday interactions and in your workspaces, in your um, in your own uh, family uh, lives. And then lastly, challenge systemic racism. Think about the insidious ways that systemic racism has impacted all of us and find a way to challenge it. And so that's where that deep work happens. It's going to look different for everyone. But those are three ways that you can think about celebrating Juneteenth. And with that, we'll keep fighting all of us together as we reimagine a fair and just world. 
where we all can thrive, not in spite of, but because of who we are. All right, y'all, we're out of here. Enjoy your weekend and I'll see you next week. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Relinda Speaks. Subscribe to the podcast and leave me a review. I want to know what you're thinking. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Take care. Be well. I'll see you next time. Bye.